Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I'm glad to turn with God's Word with you once again this morning, which leaves me this sermon, which is uh, after, after my series is finished. And so as I started to think uh, what I wanted to preach on, I thought, you know, whenever you come to the final Sunday of a year, it causes you to reflect a bit on the year that has passed. And maybe this is a year some of you would rather not reflect on. Uh, it's certainly a, a different one than we anticipated as I was thinking about 2020, I was thinking back to Facebook and seeing some posts early in January of 2020, and you know how things like this probably wouldn't have stuck in your mind at all if it weren't for the way things turned out. But I, I remember perusing Facebook last January and seeing the comments, 2020 is going to be a great year. 2019 was a bit rough, but I'm looking forward to a new start and a wonderful 2020. 2020 vision, you know, all of the, uh, the, the comments about what was ahead, and, and yet here we are. And now 2020, if you're not aware of it, is officially a verb. For something to be 2020 means something got ruined. So you might say, my dinner plans got 2020'd, or my vacation got 2020'd. And so put in the context of our expectations, 2020... Well, it got 2020 and so here we are. But if we widen our lens a bit beyond just this past year and put this year in the context of all of history, when we consider grief or loss, we consider disappointments or unmet expectations, when we consider pain and suffering, 2020 is not really all that unique. In fact, humanity has faced these challenges again and again. And it's not just humanity in general, but sufferings are not new to God's people. And so it's not surprising that God's Word would have much to say to us in the midst of difficulty. And so this morning, as we end this year, I want to look together at Psalm 77. It's a psalm that gives us words to hear and words to speak and words to ponder in the midst of life's hardships, and it's a psalm that draws our minds back to the Lord and gives us a pattern for how to approach difficulty when it comes. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 77, and let's read this psalm together. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then... My spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for this word and this psalm spoken by a man and yet inspired by you so that we can say that your spirit continues to speak to us by this word. Would you do so this morning that our hearts might be rooted and grounded in you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's often the case that we find particular help or comfort or encouragement from others who have gone through the same difficulties that we have in life. More formal opportunities, like a a program like Grief Share, seeks to bring people together who have lost similar loved ones in life. But informally, too, we often find comfort in talking to those who have gone through the same things we have. A couple who has lost a baby, or a couple facing unexpected unemployment, or grandparents or parents watching a child or grandchild reject the Lord. Often find it of particular benefit to talk with someone else who has gone through a similar miscarriage or job loss or family tragedy. And so it's a blessing for us when we find out that the writers of God's Word also know what it is to suffer. See, the Bible is not polished, it's not sugar coated in its perspective on life. In fact, In Scripture, God's Word again and again exposes the ugly consequences of sin and the fall and the pain that faces us as we walk through this world. God's Word reveals the doubts and the questions, the accusations, the despairs, the confusion that come with suffering. And in doing so, God both shows His understanding of our pain and also gives us words and a pattern to walk through in relationship with Him. And that's certainly the case here in Psalm 77. This psalm is written by Asaph. Asaph, uh, we read about him in Chronicles. He was uh, in charge of ministering before the ark of the Lord in the time of David. And he and his sons were appointed by David to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving before God. So writing psalms, you could say, was part of his job description 
And many of the psalms in the uh, Psalter are written by him. And we're not told anything specific about Asaph's suffering in this psalm. Maybe it was a personal grief and something that had happened to him or his family. Maybe it's something that the nation is going through. Maybe it refers to suffering related to the tumult in David's kingdom when David's sons rose up against him. We don't know. But it is clear that Asaph's soul is troubled. And in the midst of his suffering, the psalmist finds comfort in the unchanging character of God. And that's his main point in the psalm. That's what I want to look at today. And as he goes through this to make this point, Asaph begins by describing God's apparent silence in the midst of his suffering. Then he describes the questions and doubts that he expressed. And finally, he finds comfort in the character of God. So I want to walk through each of those parts of this this psalm together. We'll begin in verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 through 6, Asaph describes God's apparent silence in his suffering. In verse 1, the psalmist declares that he cries aloud to God. He cries aloud to God and he's confident that God will hear him. This is the right starting place for anyone who is suffering to cry aloud to God knowing that God hears our cries. But in verse 2, we find a man who has been praying, a man who has been persistent in his prayers, and yet things have not changed, and he doesn't see any sign of a response from the Lord. If you look at the the Hebrew verbs in verse 2, the verbs express the passage of time, a passage of time during which the Asaph's hand has been constantly stretched out for help. He's continued to seek the Lord, and yet his soul refuses to be comforted. His soul is not refusing to be comforted because he's rejecting the Lord's help. His soul is refusing to be comforted because he will not just pretend that things are okay. He needs the Lord's help, but he feels that the Lord is distant and silent. Jim Boyce, the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, shared a paraphrase of verse 2. And the paraphrase goes like this. Why does God let things go on as long and as tragically as they do without giving any tokens of his interest or concern? Here's a man who is praying and has been praying, and yet his soul refuses to be comforted, for the Lord appears to be silent. In fact, not only does the psalmist not see any fruit from his prayers, but in verse 3, when he tries to remember God's works of old or the, the songs that he used to sing and praise to God, they bring him more grief rather than less grief. And his spirit moans within him for remembering God's past favor only emphasizes how poignant the absence of God's works or a presence appears to him now. And the result is he thinks about what he remembers of the Lord and the songs he used to sing and he compares that to the way he feels now and what he's experiencing now. The result is sleepless nights in confusion. You see it in verse 4. He says that the Lord holds his eyelids open. In other words, in this ongoing suffering as, as the Lord appears to be silent, he cannot sleep. His suffering and difficulty is on his mind as he's awake in his bed at night. 
and he says that he does he cannot speak he he's he does not have a coherent comment to make if you will that would bring any clarity to the situation and his confusion and his exhaustion only add to his suffering many of you know the name charles spurgeon so well-known 19th century preacher. And Spurgeon found particular comfort in these first verses of Psalm 77. He wrote, Some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. Alas, my God, the writer of this expedition well knows what thy servant Asaph meant. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions, my spirit knows full well your awful gloom. These are not things that a believer who just has enough faith will not experience. Asaph charts this course for us. Some of you know these feelings as well. You feel that you can handle a certain amount of suffering, perhaps, but that amount passed weeks ago. You know the if-only statements that come in suffering. If only I could sleep, I could make it through. If only God would give me some hope, then I could endure for as long as it took. If only I could experience this, but not my child. And so we know the phrase, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Your thoughts whirl about in your head until you don't know if you're crazy or sane. You know the feeling of waking up and going to bed and doing everything in between, feeling like a cloud of darkness or, or despair clings heavily to every thought and attempted action. You know the feeling that you have stretched out your hand without wearying and yet God still feels distant. This is how Asaph feels. And God has included his thoughts and his words in the inspired word of God. But though God appears silent and suffering continues unabated, Asaph does not stay silent and he does not sit in his gloom. And that's the danger for us, that we will sit in that gloom and that silence and determine that if God is not going to meet us on our terms, that he must either not exist or have abandoned us. Asaph doesn't do that. He moves in the proper direction in verses 6 to 10 to express his questions and his doubts. In the face of his sleeplessness and confusion, he determines in verse 6, he says, "...then my spirit made a diligent search." He slows down his spiraling thoughts. He pauses to express his questions. And the essence of his question is found in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? That's the heart of Asaph's concern as he walks day after day in his suffering. Is this never going to end? What if God is done with his people? and has decided never again to draw near to us. For those of you who have known grief and, and suffering, you know, you know how our minds move to this. We go from our suffering now to what if this never ends? We feel like we may have relied on God's grace for a month or for a year, but can we really go on forever? 
But Asaph doesn't stop there. That's the essence of his concern. But then he continues to ask questions. And if you notice his questions in verses 8 and 9, Asaph is willing to ask a question and then clearly state the implication of his question. And will you notice how in these questions in verses 8 and 9, in each one, an attribute of God is mentioned that is incompatible with his despair. He phrases each question with an incompatibility. Look at the questions that he asks there in verses 8 and 9. Has his steadfast love ceased forever? But steadfast love by definition cannot cease unless God himself fails. If God has steadfast love, steadfast love cannot cease or it wouldn't be steadfast. Are his promises at an end? Well, not unless the Lord denies his own character. The Lord cannot make a promise and then not fulfill it without ceasing to be God with the character he has proclaimed. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, the Lord cannot forget his people without denying his gracious favor. And so these questions force Asaph to the root of his problem. They bring him right back to the character of God and show him that the catastrophic questions that he's starting to ask are incompatible with who God is. If God's character has not changed, then the depths of his fears and despairs cannot be true. When I read these questions that that Asaph is asking, I I think of a conversation between a Sunday school teacher and a four-year-old. If you've ever been in Sunday school or maybe watched young kids and and parents start coming to pick them up and then then there's that one parent who's running late and you've got the last four-year-old left in the classroom and what what does that four-year-old do well they 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 start to get quiet and you can see panic starting to get on their on their face and then then maybe sometimes they'll withdraw to kind of a far corner and and, and sit in a far corner there and what's, what's going on? Well, they're thinking everyone else's mom has come for them, but my mom hasn't come for me. What, what if my mom never comes? And what does the teacher do? Well, the teacher starts to ask questions. Questions that rely on what the four-year-old knows about their mother. Do you really think that your mom would forget you? Your mother, you know that she always shows up. You think your mom who always shows up for you is going to forget you? Do you think your mom would ever stop caring about you and coming for you? Of course not. You know your mother. You know how much she loves you. So the teacher starts to assure the four-year-old by asking these questions and bringing the four-year-old from the assumptions in their mind back to the character of their mother whom they can trust. And that's a little bit of what Asaph is doing here with his questions as his questions begin to turn his mind back to who God is and how God has demonstrated his character to his people. And he declares in verse 10, after asking these questions, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And that's the turning point of this psalm. Because in verses 11-20, through the psalmist turns from God's apparent silence from his questions and doubts and begins to meditate on the character of God. 
And in his character, the psalmist finds comfort and hope. And this is so often what the Lord is trying to do. C.S. Lewis is the one who comments that God often will withdraw a sense of his presence and cause us to go through times of difficulty and suffering, not because he is actually gone, but to encourage our hearts to chase after him so that it is these times of difficulty and these times when the Lord feels far away that we pursue him and say, no, the Lord in his character and who he is is who I need. And there is where more growth comes in our faith and our walk with the Lord than in any time. As C.S. Lewis said, if the Lord's presence was warm and close to a person at every moment, anybody could follow the Lord. It is faith that pursues him. And that is what Asaph is demonstrating here. And Asaph's faith points him back to the character of God. Look then at verses 11 through 20 as, as Asaph begins to rehearse who God is. He begins by remembering God's mighty deeds. You'll see a number of words or synonyms that are used in verses 11 and 12 to describe God's power at work. He says that the deeds of the Lord and his wonders of old and his works and his mighty deeds have been on display. And these words together capture the almighty power of God And the fact that God has used that power in miraculous ways that has caused Israel and all the earth to stand in awe of Him. His wonders and His mighty deeds, they, they include creation. They include judgment and salvation. They include divine provision for His people. And through such deeds of might and power, God has made known His might to His people. And they lead to just one conclusion. Who is great? like our God. Then Asaph considers God's holiness in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy, he says. And referring to God's way or his pattern of how he acts as holy, the psalmist is capturing the exalted purity or exalted perfection of God. Both in the moral sense, his ways are perfectly pure and right, as well as in the high and glorious sense that all he does flows from God's perfection and excellence as the high and holy one who dwells in unapproachable light. So God's ways, the way God works, the things God brings about are holy, perfect, and pure. If you put together God's mighty power with his holy perfection, then we stand before a God who is able to do anything and who from the essence of his character will always work what is right and perfect for his people. And if that is who God is, then we can expect him to exercise his power in ways that are good and right for his people, even when we can't see how that is happening. And that is, in fact, just what the psalmist has seen from God before. And this is, again, how our mind should work. If we can't see how God is powerful and holy and working things out in ways that are good and right now, then look to the past and see, is that how God has worked in the past? Has God's character been shown to be mighty and holy? So that's what the psalmist does. 
Beginning in verse 15, he begins to turn his mind back to God's salvation and redemption of his people. He says, with your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then in verses 16 through 19, he describes how God saved Israel from Egypt and saved them from the army of Egypt in the Red Sea and brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them his law. It's a poetic description. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. Your path was through the sea. The law on Mount Sinai was given with thundering and shaking and lightning flashes. The Red Sea rescue and God's giving of the law together describe God's gracious redemption as he rescues Israel from slavery and then covenants with them to be his own people and give them laws of wisdom and righteousness that would astound all the nations around them. And so this is how God with his power and holiness had acted on behalf of his people to redeem them. But God doesn't just act in significant moments of divine power. God's strong arm and holy ways have also been at work even on a day-by-day basis, guiding his people. And the psalmist recognizes this in verse 20, the final verse of the psalm. He says, through the whole story of Israel's salvation from Egypt and their wandering through the desert and their arrival at the promised land, God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's not just a wonder worker. He is also a faithful God who tenderly cares for his people, leading them and doing what is good for them day after day. Surely, yes, Israel sang songs of joy right after they saw the Egyptian army slaughtered. But there were times in that desert wandering when Israel sure felt like God wasn't near them. They sure felt that God wasn't carrying them or drawing near to them. And yet, God demonstrated his nearness to them. He demonstrated that he was leading them like a flock and caring for them like a flock through the whole journey to the promised land. And so as the psalmist turns his mind back and sees how God has acted and has demonstrated his power and his holiness and his tender care and his faithfulness, the psalmist can step back with renewed faith in the character of God. And notice carefully that there's nothing in this psalm that says that Asaph's circumstances have changed. There is no declaration, well, then God finally answered me. Or then God finally rescued me or defeated my enemies or changed the thing I was sad about. That doesn't come. From everything we can tell at the end of this psalm, Asaph's situation is still the same. But it's the character of God that has brought him hope. It's this combination of power and purity, faithfulness and care that has led him to firm ground. Because if this is who God is, And if God has done all of this before and he has not changed, then the psalmist can have confidence that he is able and faithful to do again whatever is best for his people. He is able and is faithful to lead and care for his people again to the end, even when he doesn't feel it or see it in a second-by-second basis. And this is even more true for us. Because if the psalmist can look back to a rescue from Egypt, we can look back 
to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God demonstrated climactically that He cares for His people. He demonstrated with power and holiness, with might and faithfulness, that He keeps His promises and goes even to the point of the grave to redeem His people. Cameron Cole is a youth pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. While he was on an overnight trip with his youth group, his wife called him with the news that he never could have expected. His three-year-old son had died in his sleep the night before. For a three-year-old to die in their sleep happens about one in every 625 million cases. In other words, it almost never happens. But it happened to Cameron Cole. Several years later, Cole wrote this. He said, Too often people think that we will have peace when we get answers to why. In reality, peace and comfort flow from asking the question, Who? God has told me that He is gracious and compassionate. He has told me that He is perfect and upright and just. He is wise and brilliant. He is good and He is all-powerful. He forgives. He makes all things work for good for those who have been called by Him and love Him. He is now making all things new. And He has proven all of this to be true in the life and death and resurrection of His own Son, Jesus Christ. If you live under the notion that God is against you, or that God owes you something, or that God is untrustworthy, then you can have all the answers you want and still have a troubled heart. However, if you know that God has perfect integrity and perfect love and is making all things new through Jesus Christ, then you can live at peace, even with no answers at all. That was true for Asaph. That was true for Cameron Cole as he wondered why his son. And I believe that can be true for each of us if we come back and lean in faith on the solid character of God that was demonstrated and proven in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. As we come to a close this morning, I want to conclude with three brief comments as maybe we apply this psalm to our own hearts and lives. First, I began this morning by noting that we often find particular help or comfort from others who have gone through similar sufferings to us. Part of this highlights the fact that suffering and difficulty tends to isolate us. In his book on suffering, Tim Keller discusses a, a classic essay by the French philosopher Simone Weil. I didn't double-check to see if I was pronouncing that correct. I'm not too good on my French. The essay was The Love of God and Affliction. And in it, this French philosopher describes how suffering and difficulty tend to isolate us and make us alone. Sometimes we're embarrassed by what we or our family are going through, and we withdraw. Sometimes good friends that we have felt shared common experiences with suddenly don't share the experience that's dominating our lives, the loss and grief we've just faced. And so a barrier or distance comes between us. Sometimes 
We feel too weary in our grief to draw near to others. And for all these reasons, we tend to be isolated by suffering. But what a blessing to come to God's word and find that no such barrier exists between us and our God or between us and his word. Because in the words of the Psalms, we find God-inspired language that joins us in affliction and gives voice to our griefs. In the words of Scripture, we find that God himself knows suffering. Here in God's word, we find Asaph asking questions, expressing doubt, crying to the Lord, telling the Lord that he feels that he's distant and silent and does not seem to be speaking in the midst of his trouble. Here in Psalm 77, we find words of lament and weeping for the brokenness of evil and loss and silence and despair. And here in Psalm 77, we find these things expressed with God-given language. If we find comfort in company, then we find that God's people have suffered with us for centuries. We find in the New Testament that no one knows pain and suffering as much as God himself. And he has recorded this in his own word. And so it is that God draws near to us in his word with just the companionship we need in suffering. If we feel isolated or alone or that no one understands, God does. He is the one worth seeking in his word and in his presence. Second thought for us this morning. I think this psalm gives us an important process for moving from despair to hope. In the same essay that Keller had drawn attention to on the love of God and affliction, the same essay also talked about how suffering causes us to be self-absorbed. And part of this is natural. It's so difficult to think on anything else or anyone else when the hurt and loss that you are facing consumes our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. It's so easy to become fixated on what is happening to us. And Wheel argues that beneath all this, affliction makes God appear to be absent for a time, more absent even than a dead man, more absent than light in the utter darkness of a cell. This is her expression of her loneliness and the feeling of God's absence during times of suffering. And this is so often the battle of suffering. And it's precisely what happens in this psalm. But I want you to notice the progression of this psalm. If you notice the first six verses, when the psalmist is expressing his sleeplessness and trouble and grief and the feeling of God's absence and silence, the first person pronouns, I, me, and my, occur 20 times. 20 times in six verses as the focus of the psalmist is on himself. My soul refuses to be comforted. My spirit faints. My eyelids are held open. I am so troubled. I cannot speak. He's focused on the way he feels and what's happening to him. But what happens is the psalm progresses. As Asaph begins to make his search, his focus is drawn away from himself and toward God. In verses 12 through 20, the second person pronoun takes over for the first. The first person pronoun doesn't happen 
anymore after he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. The second person pronoun occurs 20 times. And the last eight verses, your might, your way, your works, your arm, you led your flock. And God invites us to name our griefs, to call out to him in anguish, to call evil and suffering what it is, and to tell the Lord what we are going through. He invites us to do that, but we're not to remain there. We're not to sit in our self-absorbed suffering. We're to move on to his character, which takes our eyes off ourself and puts it on our God, whose character is enough to be a solid rock to stand on in the suffering he calls us to go through. When I think of this, I think of object permanence. Object permanence is a, a term used in childhood development, and it refers to when a child gets to the point when they can recognize that when an object disappears, it doesn't cease to exist. Right? And this is why peekaboo is such an astounding success with a six-month-old. You hold the, the baby doll there, and then you take it away, and then you make it reappear, and that little baby actually thinks you're a magician. They think you can make things disappear and come to be again. This is why it can be so traumatic to drop a young child off in the nursery and have the parent disappear. They don't know that the disappearing thing still exists. Object permanence comes when we can see, when we don't see something, we know it still exists. And as adults, sometimes we act the same way with God. When we can't see Him at work or feel His presence, or when we become buried in our loss and feel that He is absent, we can begin to act as if He is gone and His character is no longer true, that His steadfast love has ceased, that His promises have failed. And what we need is the object permanence that Asaph gives us in this psalm in which we turn away from ourselves and our pain to stand solidly in trust of our God. Whether we see Him or fail Him right now or not, we know He exists. We know He is true. He has proven it and demonstrated it and shown it to us again and again. And He does not cease to exist. We need this process in our lives. And finally and briefly... I began this morning by saying that 2020 has been a challenging year. And for everyone here, that may be true to different extents. For some, the burdens and the suffering of this year have been significant. For others, 2020 has been more a year of inconveniences and disappointments. And if this has been true for you, that it's just been a year of inconveniences or disappointments, you may not gravitate toward the language of this psalm because we haven't felt ourselves to be truly helpless or desperately in need of God's deliverance. But that doesn't mean, if this has just been a year of inconveniences and disappointments, that we've done a great job of walking with joyful contentment, does it? Just because we don't turn to the words of this psalm or doesn't mean we respond with joy. For many of us, we've just walked through this year griping about the way things are and not making the turn to these precious truths. But for frustrations or inconveniences, just as much as for the deep griefs and sufferings in life, just as much as for the fears of what might happen, we need the same words of Asaph 
to turn us back to the character of God, who is mighty in power and holy in his ways, who redeems his people and who shepherds us and cares for us as his flock. God has proven this before in bringing Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He's proven it decisively in sending his son to die for us and rise again in our place that we might be forgiven and rescued. He's shown it by guiding us and caring for us. And he'll show it to us again. He'll prove his character again in 2020 and in 2021 and in whatever he calls his people to go through in the days to come. And for that reason, we can end by saying with Asaph, what God is great like our God. Let's pray. Father, this past year has brought things we wouldn't have expected. It ranges from inconveniences to fears and anxieties to deep suffering. And 2021 will almost assuredly bring things that we cannot anticipate and we do not expect, which will run the gamut from inconveniences to fears and anxieties to deep griefs and sufferings. But Father, your word tells us that in this world that is still marred by the curse of sin, we should expect these things. They are no stranger to you or to your people. They do, not, they, they do not bring us to despair. For you are with us. You have shown that you are with us. You have cared for us and brought us through and you will do so again. And so, Father, I pray that you will root us and ground our hearts in the character of God. Your character never fails. The death and resurrection of your Son will never fail. And we look forward to the day when you will complete the process of making all things new. May we stand in hope on your character as we wait for that day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.